This podcast is brought to you by everythingvoluntary.com. My name is Jared Norton, and this is The Voluntary Contrarian. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Voluntary Contrarian Podcast. Today is, oh, what are we looking at? April 8th, 2019. And I have a guest for today's show, a guy that I actually heard of because he made a comment on one of my uh, previous episodes, episode 13. And so I went to check out his his actually he left two videos for his comments and i decided to check them out and i was really intrigued by this guy so i'd like to introduce shepherd hey hi there hey how you doing today just wonderful thanks so much for having me on well of course thanks for agreeing to be on now so what apparently you heard the episode that i did on on cops Yes. And um, I, I have to admit, that day I had been watching a bunch of YouTube videos. I don't know what kind of mood I was in that day. <laughs> but I was watching this one guy in particular who would um, – he would intentionally kind of go up to cops and kind of screw with them. And I get some kind of mild entertainment out of that. I've kind of been anti-authorian, anti-authority my entire life. And, uh, you know, although I don't do what they do because I, I don't really want – to do that, I, it's just more of entertainment value to right, me. Right. So I was a little bit fired up when I did that interview or that uh, that podcast. So anyway, um, what were your thoughts on that, and why did you send those to me? You know, I have had a change of opinion over the years. When I first started delving into voluntarism, I was in touch with uh, Pete, who was one of the founders of Cop Block. And this was probably 10, 12 years ago. And I invited him. I was still a cop. So maybe it was a little bit more than that. Whenever it was, I was still a cop. And I said, you know, you should really go out on a ride along and just give cops a chance. You know, they're really a, a good group of people. Yeah, there are a few bad eggs, but overall, they're good folks. And so we had some email exchanges and I learned that he had taken some criminal justice courses and been on ride alongs and kind of knew his stuff. As years went by, we became better friends. Uh, and I came around to understanding that, in fact, what they were doing, going around filming cops, was actually probably a good thing in the long run. Even though it's not something I'm going to choose to do, I'm kind of grateful that uh, that they did. And I know that's different than uh, intentionally agitating. Um, but, yeah, I think I think there's a good case to be made for both. I was, I was a cop for years, and uh, it... It was an annoyance. <laughs> <laughs> so from personal experience, you've actually had people challenge you on the street in, in either a First Amendment or Second Amendment type uh, type audits? No, I got so lucky that I never was. I left law enforcement in 2005, and it hadn't really heated up that much at that point. But I remember around 97 or so, I was a police officer in Hermosa Beach, California, and the word went around 
that there was a guy out driving around. He was a retired black sergeant from, uh, you know, somewhere in the, the Southern California, one of the cities there. And he became famous, uh, at least in cop circles, when the cops uh, grabbed him. And of course, he was doing something to make sure he caught their attention. And they came up on a sidewalk and grabbed him and shoved him up against a storefront window. And the glass shattered. And I was familiar with him because we'd watched training videos about how he purposefully hit the glass with his forehead to make it look like he was being rammed into it. Well, when I was in Hermosa Beach, word came out, this guy's driving around town today trying to get pulled over just so he can get you guys in trouble for something. So watch out for him. And that was kind of my first introduction to those that would agitate for political or non-political for philosophic reasons. So would you say you saw kind of a uh, – was it kind of a gradual change in public, I'd say, uh, kind of optics uh, over the years? Or did it just uh, kind of a gradual thing or more of a – something happened, some newsworthy event happened, which kind of started making people be a little bit more abrasive towards cops? You know, that is a – that's an excellent question. And, and Jared, I don't really know. I, I think that I was on – I was wearing such a different pair of glasses. I was looking through such a different set of lens uh, at, at that point that I don't think I can objectively know because my perspective in 2002 versus 2015 uh, that were just there was worlds apart. Um, so I don't really know. I, I think that the cops that are still cops today probably felt much like I did when I was a a pro-state uh, cop uh, in my earlier years. So I don't know that the sentiment has changed within the police community, but I know that's not what you asked. Um, <laughs> I, I think that even in the, the public, I don't know what the actual numbers are because I, I used to hang around with people that liked cops. And now I hang around with people that, uh, that don't like cops. And, <laughs> So, yeah, I, I don't really think I have a very clear view to, to have an opinion about that. Okay. So, so when you left, um, did you retire or did you, did you kind of just give it up for a different line of work? <laughs> I didn't get a cake. <laughs> you it's, didn't get a cake. <laughs> so you could either leave a place of employment and get a cake or not. And I didn't get a cake, um, but I wasn't fired, but I didn't leave under good circumstances. Mm. And I couldn't, I can't believe I hadn't been fired. And I'm sure I would have been at some point, uh, be it sooner or later. Uh, there was an incident and uh, there was an internal affairs investigation uh, against me. And at the time, my, my new security business was looking great. And I kind of just said, you know, this doesn't look like it's going to going to be good for me, whether I get canned or reprimanded or whatever. And uh, yeah, so I decided to set out and be an entrepreneur finally. Well, good. So how much did volunteerism enter into your, uh, your, your purview before or after you had, had uh, moved on from the force? It was after I moved on. Uh, I was listening. I, I had a, a PI gig or a, a surveillance gig, and I was sitting in my car for long hours trying to find things to listen to. And I happened upon Stefan Molyneux mm. and uh, the man formerly known as an anarchist. Yes. And <laughs> I was listening to hundreds of hours of his content, and that kind of gave me a, 
a, a good philosophic foundation. And this would have been in 2007 or eight, I believe. I'd just come off of the Ron Paul campaign. This was a few years after I left law enforcement. So while I would be proud to say that I was a, a cop and then had an epiphany and decided to become a worthwhile human being, uh, made a tough decision to do that and gave up a good career, that eh, wasn't really the case. I was already out of law enforcement and uh, it was it was not really related to that. Okay. So after you heard Molinow, who apparently, you know, he's a pretty good gateway drug for a lot of um, anarchists and, and voluntarists. Like, and like you said, the, the man formerly known as an anarchist, yes. uh, but did, what, what took you, what was your next step? What did you start digging into after that? You know, he was actually, I would say my second or third step first was a, a YouTube video by uh, Doug Casey and Tom Woods. And they were, it was, is minarchism an oxymoron or something to that, uh, that effect? And they were debating minarchy versus anarchy. And I listened to that, and then a buddy told me, uh, you know, the, the old joke of what's the difference between a libertarian and an anarchist. And, you know, it's three years unless you're really slow like me, and in that case, it's seven years. And I thought, oh, wow, I should think about this more. And then got into some uh, – I believe right around that time I, I got into some Larkin Rose. I, I think Larkin was probably my next step after Stefan. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, you know – of course, you know, for some Mises books that were good, and uh, I love Walter Block and uh, read at least a couple of his books. Um, yeah, that was kind of my kind of my progress. Was I, I think it was Stefan and then Larkin after Stefan. Yeah, I always find it interesting the different paths people go down. Um, it's some are, I don't know, a little bit kind of a more a um, what do you say? kind of a back and forth, uh, you know, from one side of the road to the other side of the road until kind of things kind of narrow down into your thinking starts becoming more and more clear and that path becomes narrower and narrower um, as you, as time goes on. And uh, especially when you couple in Austrian economics, I'm not sure if you're a big, uh, I wouldn't say believer, but for lack of a better term, are you a kind of a, do you espouse Austrian economics as well? Yes. However, I, I certainly don't do it from a, a, a place of thinking I know very much. Uh, I, I'm not that bright. And so the, the Mises books are, are beyond me. You know, Rothbard's For a New Liberty. Yep, that sounds good. But getting into the deep, uh, the deep stuff, yeah, I'm not there. Uh, I did like Mises enough that I, probably eight or nine years ago, I took a walkabout and just uh, flew down to Atlanta for a week, 10 days, whatever, rented a car and went on my walkabout. And my primary destination was Mises Institute. I just wanted to go and walk into the building and sit in the library and read. And uh, I guess that kind of makes me a geek, but that was, uh, <laughs> that was a walkabout I took. Well, you're, you're definitely among geeks and nerds. I think uh, a lot of us in this, in this community can be uh, described with those two terms, but you know what, if that's what, uh, if that's what I am to be part of this community, then I'll take the, those titles. <laughs> I agree. And you know, I think that is actually a, a an interesting distinction the, the, the people like me that are not as analytical and I think about 87 or so percent of voluntarists are either uh, mechanical engineers or computer engineers or something like that. And, and I'm not part of that group. I'm more of a, 
you know, happy-go-lucky, less deep thinker. And it's interesting to see the, the, the different sides. And I would say Larkin Rose is more like me in that he doesn't – uh, doesn't spend hours studying code because he thinks it's really fun. Whereas other people, another person I have huge respect for, Carl Watner, uh, voluntarius.com. Mm. Yes. He'd been fighting this fight for 30 whatever years. Uh, and he is so detailed. I mean, submit an article to his website and you're going back and forth. He's helping you edit it, make sure everything sounds uh, correct, making sure the facts are right. And I'm more of just, yeah, I'm going to sit down with my, my camera and make a video and put it out there. And if it's more than three minutes, people lose attention. I'm going to make it short, sweet, and just kind of brain droppings. And, and so I think that's an interesting thing with different people in the movement, all of our different styles. Right, right. And I do like the fact that there's people who use different uh, techniques and also different uh, types of media to uh, kind of um, – share their message and they could come from either from music or through, f through meme making <laughs> or, yes. you know, uh, or, or podcasting or doing like you do, you know, making videos and yeah, all kinds of different things to do. And, um, and I appreciate every one of them out there doing it because like I, I was having a conversation with somebody else about this one time. And I, I said, it's, it's nice because each person's voice or each person's message has something different to it. And not everybody listening is going to like, say, a Larkin Rose or a, <laughs> or a Tom Woods or, or, you know, name your, your, your voluntarist here. But, uh, you, you know, you kind of gravitate towards those who kind of speak your language or so to, or so to speak. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons that I'm actually doing the, the YouTube channel is that I see a, a real need for uh, content producers that reach out to mainstream folks. And I, I can't share Larkin Rose with my aunt that's a, a Republican or a Democrat and watches news two hours a day and, and is quote unquote normal. Uh, you can't share Larkin with this person. They're going to be so upset that they're they're not going to listen anymore. Now, an analytical person who's willing to add the numbers and, and agree, you know, I might not like that two plus two equals four. I might want it to equal five. However, I'm an engineer, and if you can prove to me that two plus two is is four instead of my preference, well, and I'll go along with it. Well, that kind of person, it's it's Larkin Rose is great. For me, Larkin Rose is great. I, I still love the stuff he puts out. However, who is there for my aunt? Who right. is a quick <laughs> soundbite? Or for my 21-year-old cousin who isn't going to listen to a 12-minute a geeky video or, or read a long article? Uh, what's fun and approachable and lighthearted and, and kind and not you people always? No. I wonder <laughs> if we instead of you people. I, I just think that kinder, gentler, uh, not many people doing it. And I wish there were, because I'm sure others would do it much better than I would. And then I wouldn't need to. But I think that there's really a need for that in the, the movement, if there's such a thing as the movement. Actually, that is one of the reasons I actually was kind of, after I watched a few of your videos, I was thinking to myself, God, man, this guy is actually, he's not like a lot of people I've listened to because you do come across very, um, you're very welcome. You're not heavy handed or hard hitting, but your message is heard. You, you get your point across 
And I think that, uh, you know, if you asked the question, who would be a good person to listen to, it would be your YouTube channel. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I actually have a little trick. I, I put up uh, in my in front of my computer and I look at it every day. I have a collage of photographs and they're photographs of my mechanic who is just a, a I love this guy. He treats me well. I treat him well. Uh, I text him when when the car needs to be fixed, and, and he just he bends over backwards to be a great mechanic. And he happens to be a former special forces guy who is proud that his son just went into the Marines. And he's he's the guy that's waving the flag at all the veterans of foreign allegiance wars or whatever they're called. And he is really pro military. Mm-hmm. If he saw. The stuff that I produce, I think he would fire me and no longer be my mechanic. I have a picture up of my aunt who is not of like mind. I have a picture up of my cousin who is not of like mind. Both of them are lefties. I have pictures up of several people that are business associates that are very important to my business. And as I think about the content I put out, I think about those people and I say, what if they heard me? How can I how can I say this in such a way that I'm, I'm not being dishonest, but I'm being I'm polishing the diamond and, and it's digestible and it's it's palatable and it's something that go, wow, he kind of has a point. I'm going to think about that. And then as soon as they get to that point, then poor them, they're going to start getting inundated with emails of watch this video, watch this podcast by <laughs> you know this snarkin with Larkin podcast. And then they're going to get inundated with the better content producers. <laughs> right. Yeah, it is very tough. It, it seems like I can't think of one person who has actually been, con- you know, quote unquote converted by anybody um, showing a video to somebody or, you know, telling them to read this book or listen to this podcast. You know, I think it's more of an individual decision. At least it was for me. Um, and it sounds like it was for you too. You know, kind of just kind of happenstance. You kind of came across uh, some information that you found, well, well, informational for lack of a better term again. Um, but can we talk about your, your, your YouTube channel a little bit more in depth? I was really interested in the fact that you have your page kind of broken up into, um, everything from logic and reason and philosophy to you also offer life tips and some business tips. Um, so it's kind of a catch-all page for for your your uh, videos, then. Yes, I have a, a number of areas of interest, and like Doug Casey, I am really pissed off at all of the poor uh, voluntarists out there. Uh, I really would love it if I could do something to help create another. 10,000 voluntarists that are millionaires. If I can do things to help these creative, intelligent people start their businesses, grow their businesses, make smart life decisions. Uh, if there are so many people like, like me, I grew up without a dad. I didn't have good guidance and I got lucky in that I was curious and looked for it. But now when people look for it, you know, there, there's Tony Robbins and then, <laughs> The next best person, I there aren't any strong number twos out there. And mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think that I could be the strong number two, but th- there's certainly a huge gap between Tony, who's who's the number one person, and then the next step down is, you know, six or seven or eight on the scale. There's nobody up there. And so I thought I should at least give it a try. Uh, it'll be something that's out there so that my my 
daughter and, and grandkids, if and when they ever get interested, they can t- take a look at it. My son-in-laws can look at it and go, huh, you know, it is kind of a good idea to always dress decently uh, when you're out where people see you. And mm-hmm. yeah, maybe it's not a great idea to get a tattoo. And maybe looking into logic is smart. And maybe the world isn't uh, dying from plastic grocery bags in small town, middle America, uh, maybe agenda 21 is happening. And, and I, I really think thought that there, there needed to be just a bunch of little bits of information. Uh, the, the things that I have come to know, of course I could be wrong. I could be wrong about everything, but, (laughs) and I'm open to good arguments, but at the moment there seem to be a lot of truths that don't require a 45 minute video or a three hour video to get a simple point across, just a, a few hours worth of content could make people's lives 10 times better, wealthier financially, wealthier in, in friendships, romantic relationships, uh, in, in every way. I, I, I've been fortunate to create a decent life for myself and geez, I'm by no means filthy rich or, or, uh, famous or anything like that, but I've created a decent life and, and I see so many people that are have so much more potential than me that aren't getting there. And, uh, yeah, I love the idea of being able to help them and, and, uh, yeah, maybe something I say will help somebody at some point. Well, I'm sure it would, especially what I like a lot about the way you deliver your life tips is that, uh, you don't do it like say a, you know, I'll say a hardcore, uh, conservative would and kind of, uh, kind of preach from, you know, life experience and say, well, that's the way my granddaddy did it. So that's the way you're going to do it. Kind of using this more of a, uh, gosh, what would you call it? Appeal to, um, antiquity type of, uh, child rearing or even just sharing advice for someone who's up and coming, who could definitely use the tips, but not be kind of put off by the fact that you're kind of coming at it from a, a right wing, uh, um, perspective. So that definitely makes sense there. Yeah. And I think that, that Jordan Peterson, so much of the, the things he says, uh, they're wonderful. Uh, of course I'm not a, politically aligned with him, but many of the things he says are really great. However, he is going to be hated by my aunt or by this, these other people. And I'm hoping that I can just be this politically correct vanilla guy. I guess you couldn't call Nobody would ever call me that, but I'm trying to be the kinder, gentler vanilla shepherd. (laughs) The vanilla shepherd. Yeah. So like a new, new ice cream flavor. <laughs> hey, there you go. <laughs> and it's, it seems like you do much the same in that yelling and saying what you stupid people don't understand is blah, blah, blah. You know, you lose the people in 10 seconds. Yeah. I, I tend to get a little heated every once in a while, especially when something really, I do have a lot of frustration sometimes. Um, but I try to, when I take to the microphone, <laughs> I usually try to kind of temper that with a little bit of, uh, uh, I don't know. I can't think of the proper word right now for what I temper it with, but, uh, maturity <laughs> vanilla. <laughs> with vanilla. Yes, I temper it with vanilla. But, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I just wanted to really, I saw so many people doing their own, like I said earlier, doing their own version of what they, they knew how to do. And, you know, I had kind of uh, become friends with a couple guys on online, 
and uh, who had podcasts. And so they helped me get off the ground because I really felt like I, I wanted to, to add my voice to um, not that I have a lot of great content. I'm still working on that. <laughs> and I'm not always, uh, you know, I stutter sometimes or stammer sometimes, but you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I can because I really feel passionate about this. So, um, you know, the, the more voices, the more people that can go turn to uh, media and see how many people are out there like them, they're more likely to go, hey, you know, it's not just one guy or two guys out there or gals. It's a whole bunch of them. And if there's a whole bunch of people thinking like that, then I'm not weird. <laughs> Jared, I am. I, you are so on to something there. I, I, I agree completely. Uh, I, I think that Carl Watner has the page on the voluntarist that is uh, how I became a voluntarist. And there are probably 40 or 50 people on there at this point. I wish there were as many as there were voluntarists. Uh, when I first got into the movement in 2008-ish, I looked at the number of people that I thought were really, truly there. Uh, not, well, yeah, I'm basically a voluntarist. I just think we need the, the military and law enforcement. And I still vote because we can't have Hillary or, you know, not those people, but people who were really, truly there. And I figured there were 1,000, maybe 2,000 people in the world that were really there in 2008. And now in 2019, there are, I, I see a podcast or I see, I saw Chris voluntarist on Facebook and I'm like, wow, this guy has some good content. And, and then I'm seeing, uh, Patrick Smith now from, from Texas and, and you have your podcast and, and anarchy stick did a couple, but he did something so much better, uh, or so much bigger and grander than that. But, but these are just examples of a few people. And I love it when I see something and I go, wow, this person has 10 podcasts or 10 videos out and I've never heard heard of them. Mm -hmm. And I think back in 2008, I'd heard of just about everybody that was active in the movement. And now I don't even, I don't even know that the hundredth of them. And I love that. I think that's just the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. I mean, if you go on, like you said, Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, or look at the podcasts out there, uh, or even on Instagram as well. I mean, you can find dozens and dozens and dozens, you know, probably hundreds of people uh, putting their voice out there and it, you're, you're right. It is very refreshing. And, uh, cause I probably like you, as you go through life and, and deal with, uh, people and you see and hear what they say, it, it's, it's almost like sometimes you feel alone. <laughs> you feel, yes. you feel like, man, I, I don't want to, I, I kind of became a little bit more introverted than I already am. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> yes, yes. But yeah, it's a uh, go ahead. Sorry, I, w I was thinking about the the you what you're doing and how you're you're not trying to monetize this podcast and you know th this isn't a money maker for you and more power to the people that are able to monetize conventions or podcasts or or YouTube or more power to them. I'm free market. I'm capitalist. I think that's wonderful. And at the same time, I look at people like you and me. Carl Watner, um, and I, I look at Steve, Steve Thomas of Tucson, Arizona. Steve, I met and learned that he was had converted a bedroom in his home to a full recording studio, mm -hmm. spent thousands of dollars to do it right. I mean, you know, the sound 
bouncing, absorbing panels on the walls. Mm-hmm. And he showed me later, a year later or whenever, he showed me his studio. He did all of this because he wanted there to exist a good recording of the most dangerous superstition. Mm-hmm. And so he sat there in his studio, taught himself how to use the audio editing software, used his his equipment and his voice, and he read The Most Dangerous Superstition and created, divided it into, what, 80, 90, whatever uh, segments, and provided this whole thing. And he was about halfway done when uh, I saw him in Anarchapoco. This was, I think, 2016 or 15, 16, I think, and found out what he was doing and introduced him to Larkin. And they got to sit there and talk, and you know he was awestruck, just like I was. And <laughs> he got to actually say, oh, yeah, by the way, Larkin, this is a thing I did for you, and I'm not going to charge anybody for it. You know, is it cool if I put it out there? And of course, Larkin said absolutely. And so now, available for free is an incredible book. And a guy spent thousands of dollars of his own money, hundreds of hours of his time to do it. And then you look at, I look at what you are doing. And what I'm doing and what so many hundreds or, as, as you suggest, and I think you're right, thousands of people are out there, each of us doing our own little part to try to say, hey, there's some good ideas out here we found. You might want to listen to them and, and check them out and see if they work for you. I, I'm just excited about all the work so many of us are doing. That is, that's for sure. I mean, I'm very excited, too. Um, one thing that kind of, I would say... I can't say brings me down sometimes, but I think I mentioned it in a podcast once, which was it to me seemed like uh, more of an echo chamber uh, among voluntarists. Yes, uh, and every once in a while that kind of digs into my to my psyche. I get a little bit, uh, I get a little bit. Well, is it really worth it? All we're doing is kind of talking to each other and sharing each other's you know uh, anarchy porn back and forth, but. You know, there there has been proof, like you're saying, that that these these things have brought people in. So, yeah, I try to stay on the positive side of the of uh, of that. <laughs> yes, I, absolutely. And something that the former anarchist said that I just loved, Stefan. He said, "If my children ask me in however many years, Dad, you saw that bad things were happening in the world." What did you do about it? Stefan says, at least I can look them in the eye and say, I published four books. I put out 2,000 podcasts. I put out 300 YouTube, you know, all the things that he's done. And he can, with a clear conscience, say, hey, I saw the train coming. I yelled as loudly as possible to everyone. And I really sleep well at night since, since I've done that. So whether one chooses to be an activist or not, uh, for those of us that do choose to kind of uh, proselytize freedom, liberty, goodness, peace, uh, I, I think that's I think that's an impetus that many of us have, and, and I get discouraged like you, but I I think it we always come back to, yeah, I, I should probably do something good today, and this is something good. Yeah, that's very well spoken, very well said. I. <laughs> That it does kind of, uh, I thought about this the other day, actually, I thought to myself, well, these, these recordings are going to be out there forever, uh, for my children and grandchildren and 
on and on to listen to if they have the if they have the technology to go back to this uh, archaic style of <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> of uh, technology. Um, so you mentioned uh, voting. So you you are not yourself a voting person anymore, or have you been in the past? I used to be. Uh, and my view on it right now, I have a number of websites, and one of them is idontvote.org. Oh, really? So that's kind of my stance on the issue. No, I'm, I'm very strongly uh, a voluntarist in that way. And, and, and a distinction I see between a, an anarcho-capitalist and a voluntarist, the voting is a huge part of that. Uh, a, a anarcho-capitalist like Rothbard or uh, Walter Block – an anarcho-capitalist can, I think, argue that voting's okay. A voluntarist is has the small little addition uh, that we don't legitimize the state by participating in its in its acts or its its charades, its 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 theater. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't vote, and so I, I, I'm actually a little bit frustrated. And I know I can't claim rights to my favorite definition of the word voluntarist. However, I think Carl Watner has a pretty good argument. He doesn't make it. He actually argues the opposite because he's an excellent human being. But he, he – I think that the, the word voluntarist should be reserved for those that take that extra step. Uh, you can't be a voluntarist and vote at the same time. If you do that, you're very likely a an anarcho-capitalist and, and you're probably a wonderful person and a friend of mine. But – in order to wear that voluntarist badge, I I see it almost as to be intellectually honest. You you kind of have to also be a a non participator in the electoral system in the in the, in the political system. No, I t- I totally agree there. And as a side note, I'm not sure if you can hear any background noise coming through. Um, if you can, I apologize. I have two German shepherds that apparently um, I went to the store before we did the uh, the interview, and I got two really good sized bones for them, so I could feed <laughs> I, I could feed them dinner. You know, get so them they're chomp chomping. <laughs> well, get them fed and watered, and then you know they could have these nice bones to chew on. Well, there one of them's in there with this little squeaky toy, and he likes to annoy the other. German Shepherd with the toy. So I can hear it through my headphones and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the wrong time, boys, to do this. But anyway, so I apologize in advance if anybody can hear that. Uh, I love um, the soundtrack in the background. <laughs> yeah, so professional, huh? Maybe I should spend a few thousand dollars <laughs> actually make a recording studio that keeps dogs out. Um, let's see, where were we? You were talking about, uh, yes, about being kind non-voting. of more, more of a... Um, uh, kind of a purist. You didn't use the word purist, but I, I, I know what yeah. you're saying to really kind of wear that badge or that button of you know, voluntarism. You, you have to kind of walk the walk and talk the talk. Um, and actually there was a guy, I was trying to think of his name. Um, did an interview. Oh yeah. Uh, Shane Radliff. I'm not sure if you've heard of that, uh, podcaster. No. Oh, that's wonderful that he, I haven't. Oh, he, well, there wonderful. you go. His podcast is called The Vanu. It's a V-O-N-U podcast. And he, it's the theory, or not the theory, but it's based on, to the best of my knowledge, uh, from, just from memory here, it's based on a guy who was, he was living in Northern California and I think in Oregon, I want to say it was the 70s, but his goal was to kind of um, take, take. Oh my God! There's the dogs. <laughs> I love it. 
<laughs> Perfect timing. <laughs> My wife's not home to, to help me corral the dog. So <laughs> anyway, so professional. Anyway, um, he kind of a, a way to kind of take yourself away from the state and make yourself as as to the most invulnerable to the state as as possible, which included different things like um, you know living in the woods uh, or seasteading or living in a uh, a van and kind of traveling through the country, um, never really staying in one place too long, but. Right. I thought those were pretty good ideas, unfortunately, at my age, and especially having two dogs and a wife, it's really kind of hard for me to do that at this point. It's almost like our success uh, can become chains. And when I was 22 years old, my net worth, my my assets, my estate were, were such that I could do anything in the world. If at that point I had chosen not to be Mr. Responsible, become a a government employee, police officer, and help serve and protect, if I had decided instead to just tour the world and go to Thailand for a year or two and then do this and then do that and live the nomadic lifestyle, uh, it was so much – it would have been so much easier at that point. However, now that that, that you know, man, we have a house and we have a, a couple businesses and, and a bunch of cars and a bunch of contacts in the community and, and other investments and such, and, and they're not all agorist-type things that – you know it's not all just a, a pile of gold hidden out in the middle of the desert. They're, they, uh, the, the state – could seize a ton of stuff if I started doing something too wrong at this point. And you know, I say the word wrong. I, I hope you know I mean not morally wrong, but wrong in the eyes of the – not the Gestapo, the, uh, the government. <laughs> right. I, I am scared. And, and I think to, to call myself anything other than a coward wouldn't be true. I am scared – I am scared to do things. Um, I've broken off most of my relationships, my friendships with uh, other police officers I used to work with, even the ones that I once were, you know, were really good friends with. We just don't have the same things in common. So I've broken those off, but I, I certainly haven't had the guts to really come out publicly and say – I'm no longer going to have a driver's license. I'm not going to use your roads. I'm going to drive my car on the shoulder or, you know, whatever. To make those drastic steps, I'm a coward. Uh, and it's in large part because of the, the crap I've, I've been able to accumulate. I, I don't want to give that up. If I had nothing, it would sure be easier. But when you have dogs and a wife and, and other stuff, it's it's way tougher to uh, – give up what you think is a value and all the touchy feely hippie types are going to tell me that's not what's truly a value it's inner peace and grandmother ayahuasca and such and maybe they're right <laughs> i tease because i love them but that's just not my worldview and, and position in life at this point no exactly you know i wouldn't call it cowardice um if anything it's it's the acknowledgement and being logical enough to understand that, yes, if you do overstep their, you know, the state's, you know, quote unquote rules and their, their dictates, uh, they will find you and they will punish you for it. And, um, but you're right that a lot of the things that they consider to be unlawful or are immoral, I mean, are, they're immoral to them, if you know what I'm saying. They, they, they're, right. they're not using morality to, to base their, 
um, their laws on because we don't need to know. We don't need to be told what to do to be born to be moral. I don't think we do. I think we're innately we innately understand what morality is. And if it's a challenge for some people, the uh, the group or the collective will will kind of uh, herd them into uh, understanding that yes, we don't do that, and and here's why we don't do that, and uh, we can do the whole um, you know, shaming thing or the or the defooing to use a uh, Molino right. quote. <laughs> But, and I would actually say, and I, I would argue that maybe not the word we will do that, but individuals among us will say that. And it, and it kind of, I think, comes back to, well, what would you do? And you know, the question that several great philosophers have, have raised. And if you do this, I am going to do that. So if you walk up to my wife and you punch her in her face and then you turn around to start walking away, I am going to punch you. That can be argued that I'm not uh, – I'm, I'm breaking the NAP because she's no longer in danger. I'm not protecting her. This this attacker is walking away. However, I'm willing to say that I'm not perfect and sticking with my principles and just kind of one plus one equals two. If you punch my wife, I'm going to punch you. And not – we don't tolerate that kind of behavior. There's no such thing as we. I don't tolerate that kind of behavior. And the only reason I would tolerate it is if I'm a coward, if I'm afraid. If there are 20 of you standing around and when you physically assault my wife, you're wearing pretty blue costumes and you have metal detectors nearby and you don't punch her, you just touch her, then I'm going to be a coward. If you're in federal aviation, whatever, TSA um, guy trying to think. I don't watch Special Olympics. I'm not familiar with all the terms. But if, if you're one of those people, mm-hmm. you get to do what you want with my wife. And the only reason you get to is because I'm a coward. I look at what will happen, and what will happen is you touch her, I touch you, all of you touch me, and then all of you put me in a cage for the next 20 years, and that scares me. I'm afraid of that. And so... You get to touch my wife against her will right in front of me. Isn't that sad? Yeah, oh my gosh, that is you know, I I knew it was sad, but the way you explained that just now, it is very it hits home how how disgusting for lack of a better term it is that you have to stand by and watch your well not only your your wife but you know your children uh be fondled by these people but what always gets under my skin is that how how what kind of person actually takes a job like that knowing how how looked down upon they are by the general public and 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 I often wonder, how can you go home and sleep at night and know that, well, hey, I'm, all I'm doing, I'm doing my job, you know, uh, you know, I'm doing what I'm told to do. Is it just for the money, I would, I would assume? Absolutely. And, and at the time, I was – and I'm answering this from the perspective that uh, – from the worldview that I held years ago. I didn't think that I was going out and fondling or touching people, and I wasn't violating their rights, and I wasn't being oppressive. I was helping keep people safe. And what you silly anarchists don't understand is that 
these these terraces, they all want to come and uh, attack us. And there were actually 17 attempts last month alone. And you don't even, we can't tell you about all of them, but it's happening. And if we weren't out there providing this this layer of security, even if we're not actually catching bombs, we're scaring so many people away from doing it. And we've got to be doing it. And what you want to live? Well, okay, yeah, I don't even get into the arguments if you want to live in Somalia. But that's really, truly what I thought at the time. And I think that's what the typical TSA agent thinks is, is they don't think they're going and doing a bad thing. Now, having said that, I think you are onto something in such a grand way when you talk about the, the shaming, the, the, how do you sleep at night? And this is something that the bad Quaker wrote in his wonderful books. And I'm can't even think of the name of it. I, bought a bunch and distributed them to special friends, but talking about uh, sabotaging and, and such. Oh, yes, that book. Yes, great. Everybody needs to have a friend buy them a copy so their name's not on it. Oh, shoot, I'm here on <laughs> live radio. Oh, boy. Uh, one of the things, though, that he mentioned was just that idea. And so, so let's just, uh, if it's okay with you, just as an example, let, let's look at how a voluntarist might help a TSA agent find a better uh, transition to another career. If you could walk up to a TSA agent in the airport and say, how dare you, you piece of crap, um, you're touching my wife, I can't believe I'm letting you get away with this, but I'm going to because I'm scared of you, I hope you just don't sleep well and you walk away. That other human being who does not have your worldview has no clue what you just said. They think you are an absolute wacko. I mean, how could you be against them keeping people safe? Like you're, you've got to be a, a, a lunatic and then they're going to hate you. And then they're going to have a stronger, deeper feeling of them against us. Might it not be a more intelligent, uh, tact to say to them, Hey, thank you guys for what you're doing. And you know, I know you guys are, God, you guys are busting it and you're probably yeah you're you're probably making 70 grand a year. Everybody else out there is making 100, 150 grand a year and you guys are making 70 grand a year or whatever and you're out here working hard. It's not fair that you're getting paid that little and having to put up with the crap you do. Well, are TSA agents getting paid 70 grand a year? Of course not. But now they're going to go home and they're going to think, "Boy, that guy wearing that that voluntarist t-shirt sure was nice. I like that person. You know, they were right. Everybody else in the world is making way more money and I'm getting screwed over. They thought I was making 70, but I'm only making 42,000. This really sucks. And then they're going to go to work the next day. And if they go to work with that kind of negative attitude and that kind of depression, are they going to perform the state's tasks as well? <laughs> of course not. They're going to be ruder to people. They're going to upset more of my ants that beforehand would have never dreamed of being opposed to the wonderful TSA protectors. Right. And it's a it's a brilliant underhanded strategy, and way to go, Ben. Uh, it's just brilliant, and I wonder if it might not be a good idea. 
Yeah, I mean, it sounds good to me. Um, it would be the more positive way to do it rather than wearing a it's not gay, it's TSA shirt. <laughs> <laughs> At least one person has to do it, though, because then I wouldn't have the meme if nobody had done it. Awesome. <laughs> but that book is called uh, Sedition, Subversion, and Sabotage Field Manual, and that is by, yes. as you mentioned, the bad Quaker. Um, I've listened to the uh, uh, the audio version Excuse me. And yeah, that's a lot of good stuff in that book. That's for sure. Very, uh, I can't call it. Well, it it is very extreme, especially if someone like your aunt were to read something like that. Uh, She she would think that uh, (laughs) it's no, it's, it's definitely not a gateway drug into uh, anarchism or voluntarism. And I think Uh, you and I would agree that many of the things in there, especially at the higher levels, like I'm never going to do anything that's illegal. I would never want to break the law. Uh, but it's not, you know, there, there are the different layers and I'm at that layer that I can make a comment to a TSA agent that's going to increase the probability that they will voluntarily quit their evil job. I'm not going to go and slash the tires of a police car. That's destroying property. I mean, I would never dream of doing something like that, but just saying something to a TSA agent. Yeah. I think I could do that. Yeah, that's that seems pretty safe. Um, yeah, some of the things he has in that book are are quite, um, you know, I think part of, well, right. I mean, part of being part of following the nap is trying to make sure that you don't cause any uh, property damage or especially any physical damage or death to anybody. And I, I get that it's kind of um, it's extreme, but it, it, the message behind it. I get, I yes. get. And in a perfect world where I was not afraid to be, like you say, put in a cage for 20 years. Yeah. I, I would, I would consider doing some of those things, but you know, and, and that's kind of the, this internal struggle I have as well. You know, I, I want to be a, you know, quote, uh, good voluntarist and, and really, really pound the message home. But you know what, like you said, I, I don't want to go to the extreme where I'm, um, either looking for trouble or creating trouble that will get me locked up because I forget who said it, but they, they, they said, if you're behind bars or if you're in a cage, you can't do anything to further the message of voluntarism. And I thought that was pretty astute for them to say. Um, so I use that as my, as my excuse to not be an extremist. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I think that's a great point. I actually thought that the, the jail, the prison population would be a great group of people to reach out to. I, I worked in the jail for a couple of years as a deputy in Orange County, California. And I, I thought, you know, we have a whole group of people here. Now I think this, we have this whole group of people that don't like the state and all they need to do is all we need to do is just teach them um, some basics and let them put it together that there are deeper reasons why they hate the state. And then one of the most brilliant minds in the voluntarist movement, Shane Scheid, uh, was alleged to have been involved in green leafy substances and is now in the the state penitentiary for a few years. And I've been writing back and forth to him hmm. and suggested this that hey, is this a great place that you can spend some time, uh, you know, proselytizing in the uh, in the pen there? And his response was essentially no. Hmm. These people 
they're not necessarily wrong for many of the things they're they've done, but most of the people are not really bright or thinking. Mm-hmm. They all think cops are wonderful and they watch the news and they they love the soldiers and and they just aren't intellectual thinkers. And you're spending your effort trying not to get your butt kicked by another inmate or by a, a, a jailer. You can't. It's harder to think about higher level things. And so I kind of gave up on proselytizing to that population. Uh, I still wonder if when people get out, 1% of people are in jail right now. That's a lot of people in the United States. And even if you could only get to a small percentage of them, I don't know. I still think that somebody is going to, somebody's going to fill that niche, uh, reaching out to them. I might reach out to the mainstream vanilla ants of the world, but somebody is going to reach out to those folks. Maybe Barry is doing a decent job of it with, uh, never get busted. Um, maybe he's, maybe he's the person that's doing that. I don't know, but, uh, just an interesting side thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, he mentioned the, and not to try to be a, a junior version of, of Stefan Molyneux, but I do believe that they're and also at risk of sounding like I'm kind of being, um, kind of an ass, but I do believe there, there has to be a certain level of intelligence to grasp these concepts. Um, and because you're, you're having to basically, you're, you're having to take all these pre-learned things that you knew, or you thought you knew your entire life and basically tell yourself that you were wrong. And then not only that, but to fill that vacuum full of, Basically, the every message that's involved in voluntarism, whether it's um, you know, kind of being anti-state and the non-aggression principle, and uh, knowing morally what's right as opposed to what's told to you is right based on law. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of intricacies to the voluntarist movement that you really have to do a lot of deep thinking and deep introspection in order to um, to kind of come out. Uh, of it and and actually embrace it. I, I agree that it takes I, I actually think that it takes intelligence to understand why the past is wrong, but it doesn't take much to understand why voluntarism the, the basic principles are correct. I think I can explain to a four-year-old mind whether that four-year-old mind is in a four-year-old body or a 60-year-old body. I I can explain to that person, hey, how about if we all don't hit each other? Do you think maybe we'd all get along better? What if we didn't steal from each other? What if I didn't encourage those people to steal from you? And what if I was your friend and helped you? I think anybody can understand those. I think the big challenge, as you say, comes in in the, the, the deeper part is saying why it is that the police officer and the judge and the school teacher are not, in fact, the ones doing those things and that they, in fact, are doing the opposite. And, and that's where I think it's really tough is the deprogramming. And, and I agree that it takes – a certain amount of brains to be a, a principled intellectual. 
ha, ha, ha. I'm going to use my deep whatever voice making fun of intellectuals. I'm not an intellectual. I'm just a guy. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not that deep. I just I've thought about stuff a little bit, and this stuff makes sense. No, you're totally right. I've actually said several times uh, on my on my program that, yeah, I, I'm no one special, and uh, I'm just some guy with a microphone uh, who's just, like you said, done some thinking and, and some introspection. Uh, but, uh, yeah, um, I forgot where I was going to go with. You, you had me on a, on a tangent there, and I was, I was ready to go with it. <laughs> I would never lead anyone on a tangent. <laughs> but, yeah, it, you know, I look at, uh, at, like you said, the programming is just so, it, it's beat into our heads for so many years through, uh, through school and through media that, you know, you look at, Everything from the Pledge of Allegiance to uh, the national anthem to you know the flag, and seeing uh, you know military as heroes and police as heroes. You see them on TV shows and and movies, and everything just points to you know kind of America being number one, and we're great. And so as soon as someone challenges that belief they they look at you like you have three eyes and and go what are you talking about you know uh, you're you're an idiot so i believe to me that's the largest challenge and yeah, i'm not really sure i think the only way is like we said earlier is to at least put the information out there and to put the media out there so if they do stumble across it they might they might in the privacy of their own home or you know when they're away from their friends or family they can go okay i'm going to give this a listen and see uh, what well, this guy is talking about, this crazy anarchist guy. Um, and then they might actually go, oh, my gosh, you know, I've actually been thinking about that a little bit myself. I want to know more. Yes, yes. And you know something you were saying about the, the how hard it is to get away from the programming for the common person. People that were in the military, and to a lesser extent law enforcement, but especially the military, Oh my gosh, these people have a tough time of it. Uh, a couple years ago, was it two years ago that the solar eclipse uh, was going on? I think so. I think it was two years ago. And we happened to, to live in a place that the eclipse went, you know, five miles from our house was the center line. And so, of course, everybody wanted to be in our area for this time. And there happened, fortunately, to be some uh, voluntarists, some anarchists that wanted to be in the area. And one of them was actually a person that was working for us, former military. And another one was also a former military guy. Both of them now principled good voluntarists. But as we're sitting there talking, there are two former military guys and a former cop sitting there and they started telling the war stories back and forth and talking about how yeah when this so the shrapnel came and it went right in the edge of my eye and I couldn't see for two days I thought I was blind and fortunately you know my my compadres were there to, to pull me to safety and then the other guy's saying well yeah he says we had this one we were ambushed we all pile out of the truck we run down we get kind of there's this overpass area we get down to the bottom of it we're all huddled up in a circle and and the guy telling the story, my friend, was their team leader or whatever. So he's, he's got them all huddled around and say, hey, guys, it's going to be okay. We're good. We're all okay. And a rocket or a bomb or whatever lands right in the middle of their circle, like a cartoon kind of thing. And it's supposed to go boom when it lands, and it didn't. Hmm. And it would have killed all these guys. 
And then the other guy starts talking about, well, he had this injury. And then my other friend saying, well, I, when I got hit the AK-47 shot in the chest, blah, 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 and, and I took one in the foot another time, another bullet. And they're talking about all this, and they are becoming two old government battle braggarts. And just like I've done so many times with other cops, oh, we had this one call, blah, 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 blah. And afterwards, some days afterward, my the closer of the, the two friends, the guy that works with me, he said, you know, he says, I didn't like the guy I was reverting to. I was going back to that. Neither of them started saying status stuff or thank goodness we were there to, to, to save the Arabs. Or, I mean, they weren't getting into anything like that. But they were falling into the whole oorah gang, tribal, us versus them mentality. And I find that I have that weakness as well. When I get around a charismatic person that spent 30 or 40 years as a cop and they're telling these hilarious stories, I kind of start grinning and smiling and and then I have to pull myself back and say, wait a minute, I'm laughing at what this person did and I did a lot of similar things and they weren't right. They violated other human beings' rights, if there's such a thing as right. I, we violated them and it's and it's not funny. It's such an easy trap to fall into. I'd, I'd have to list that as uh, if you're interviewing me for a job, one of my greatest weaknesses is that. <laughs> I need to be able to cut that off a little bit more quickly. Well, it's it's tough to really, I think, rid yourself of of all aspects of your of one's past life. Uh, there are certain things that still kind of, uh, well... I'll tell you. So, in this, when I'd see a football game back in the day when I was a, a statist, when I'd watch uh, the, if it was a bigger game, they'd have the Jets fly over uh, the stadium. And I used to get all, you know, tingly and everything. But I'll tell you what, it's hard not to be tingly. <laughs> it's just the, and it's it's not just about it's not about the you know the you know USA and Air Force and you know go America. It's it's just it's just a connotation I think from childhood or from from my earlier years that it was an exciting thing. And so uh, you know, it, I mean, it's also very impressive too. You got these three or four or however many jets flying over at low altitude. It's pretty impressive. So yeah. it's really hard to rid yourself of all those of all those things. And I really wouldn't say it's a bad thing, but I, I get what you're saying. But we we also can't just kind of. Uh, commit suicide to our pasts because we see them as being um, not so uh, what's the word for that peaceful I guess right I, I think though that we we have the opportunity to always self-improve and look at the most difficult things in our lives that have happened and the biggest mistakes we've made and say I'm not going to let anybody beat me up over it necessarily, but I'm definitely going to apologize repeatedly. And I'm going to admit that I, that I had that problem, just like you opened up just then. And I opened up, it's not easy to do that. But if we all pretend that we've always been anarchist and, and there are a number of people that always have been and just never knew what it was called until recently, I wasn't one of those. I was a bad guy for many, many, many years. And if I now try to soften that, well, I wasn't bad. Well, yeah, I was. I wasn't purposefully being bad, but I now have the intellectual honesty to say, to think that it's okay to go up to a neighbor 
and demand $60 of them because they went through an absolutely empty intersection in their pickup truck when nobody else was anywhere around at four miles an hour instead of coming to a complete stop. To, to think that I stole $60 from them, didn't go in my pocket directly, mm-hmm. but that was wrong. And if I say, well, but I, no, there are no excuses. I, I was ignorant at the time, but I wasn't doing anything wrong purposefully, but that, that doesn't absolve me. I still messed up. Uh, and, and that's actually, I don't know, I'd love your take on it. What does a guy like me, it, they say it costs about $100,000 a year to put a cop on the road. And this was back 10, 15, 20 years ago. So now it's probably more. But between paying benefits and having the, the police car and the salary and, and the hiring costs and the ongoing training costs, it's about $100,000 a year to have a cop on the road. And I was a cop for just about 10 years. So I accepted in stolen property about a million bucks. I wrote hundreds of tickets for things like not having insurance. I wrote very few speeding tickets because I just – I like to speed and I didn't feel like it was right. But <laughs> I wrote another half a million dollars worth of – or more, maybe a million dollars worth of tickets. Mm-hmm. So all told, I caused – between one and a half and two million dollars worth of damage to my, I like the word neighbor instead of community because community gets into communitarianism and I hate that crap. So I'll <laughs> use the word neighbors, whether my neighbors live here or, or two, three thousand miles away. I created two million dollars worth of damage and I cannot right now maintain my style of living and write a two million dollar check to the people I harmed. I couldn't even find them. Mm-hmm. Well, then should I donate the money to some good cause? Should I donate it to the voluntarist, uh, I don't know, the, the trust for voluntarist uh, advocacy, uh, <laughs> the Mises Institute? I, what, could I, what can I do to absolve myself? And I'd love your, your take on that. I, I've asked this to a lot of people. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Yeah, I, I don't really know what, uh, you know, um, I think you're doing all that you can uh, right now as far as, uh, I mean, it takes a big person to admit that they were wrong. Um, and so. And I'm I, that big person. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, no, really. I mean, when I watched your videos, I, I, I was I was thinking to myself, man, this, this guy, he, it was the video about going to, um, it was the store and they had so much allotment for their selling space and somebody had a wagon wheel outside their space with a price tag on it. And you, you really had a hard time with, with that. It was just because of some, um, I'm not sure if it was a city ordinance or, or whatever it was that you're like, Oh my gosh, this person has a wagon wheel sitting out here, the price tag and some, I guess it was some other uh, vendor had complained about it. It's, it's, I, I feel, I actually feel bad for cops sometimes because they do have to put up with so much crap from the community when it comes to these little nitpicking little laws or, or ordinances or what do you want to call them? And 
they have maybe a rivalry with their neighbor or their their fellow vendor, and they just want to use the the force of the state in order to kind of get back at somebody else. And and my cop's bigger than your cop, right? And so it's it's those calls where I'm sure you guys or you used to have to go up to and kind of roll your eyes and go, "Oh my gosh, we're here for this," and that must really kind of get frustrating after a while. <laughs> Yes, and that's actually something. I got a ticket about two or three months ago. Uh, I pulled a bonehead thing, and uh, I got a $435 ticket. And at the end, I apologized to the highway patrolman. I said, you know, I spent 10 years doing this stuff, and I'm sorry you're having to do this tonight. Like, this sucks. I said, you know, for the first part of my career, of course, I have been, I've, I've been known to be sarcastic and, and a little bit underhanded, uh, <laughs> but uh, passive aggressive. But I said, you know, I said for the, for a lot of my years as a cop, I would, I would write these tickets. And I said, I didn't realize at the time what a horrible excuse. I'm just doing my job. I said, I didn't realize, you know, the whole, the whole war tried Nuremberg. I didn't realize how crazy I was thinking that, but now I think back and like, it's really sucks that I had to do that. And man, I'm sorry you had to do this tonight. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, th- well, thank you. And he had something to think about that night. He wasn't angry at me. He wasn't mad at me, but he had something to think about. And I think that that is a great way to approach oppressors now the dumb ones the, the the people like i was like he is like the tsa agents are not the true masterminds behind it all but the dumb uh, the useful idiots which is what i was <laughs> approaching them with anger and hate i, I guess there's a certain I, I would i'd say yeah there is a reason that some people should continue doing that if that's what they're good at and they enjoy but for most of us i think there's a way to get a lot more in the long run, while appearing to be very nice doing so. So, so you're not the uh, uh, the kind of person now who has all their their license and registration and proof of insurance in a Ziploc baggie hanging outside their window, are you? <laughs> no, I'm not that person. I, I'm scared when I see cops. Oh, it's so embarrassing. I see cops and I get scared. It's just, gosh. If I was really back when I was that person, if I was really the big tough guy carrying the stick, walking quietly, making sure my my town could sleep well at night and protecting them from anybody that would do them harm, if that's really truly what the old me and and all the other cops, if that's really truly what we were accomplish accomplishing, would the saying, "Oh shit, there's a cop," would that be said millions, tens of millions of times a year? Would parents be saying to their children, ooh, watch out, there's a cop, you better be good? Would those little offhanded things really be being said if cops were really big, strong, good fighters that you do need some of those to to protect against the the evil people? I, I, I believe that. But if they were really truly out there being those people, they wouldn't have the reputation they have. But it would be a very different reputation. Yeah, I, I can't say that I feel very comfortable when I see uh, a cruiser behind me. Um, and I, I usually, you know, well, I, I'm one of those guys who I obey the speed limit in all traffic laws. I use, you know, my, my turn signal and, you know, I, I often get people will actually get 
pissed off at me on the freeway because I don't go fast enough. Um, but I'm like, hey, you know, it's 60 miles an hour here, and I do not want any interaction with anybody in a white state patrol car or any other unmarked car. So I, I behave myself just because I don't want to. I just don't want to talk to them. <laughs> and, I, yep. and, and I know yep. we have a, a family friend who is actually a, um, uh, what is she? She's a county, I think, uh, police uh, or county uh, sheriff deputy. But she, uh, she got moved inside to do some type of um, detective style or investigative type of style work. But, you know, and, and this is my problem is that people say it a lot. I hear online, it's like, well, you know, I have a friend of mine who's a cop and they're, they're fine. And it's like, yeah, I understand that because I have one too. But if it's not that one cop, if it's not that friend or family member, can you say that about all the ones that you see on the road? You know, right. so you may be able to make one exception for one person, but the, the, the commonality is, is that no, nobody wants them behind you. Uh, nobody really wants to, to speak to them too much. Unless you happen to be uh, one of these boomer types who, you know, who served in, in Vietnam or something and you're pissed off your neighbor's grass is too long. So you're going to call your, your heroes over to, <laughs> to, to enforce that law. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a tough one because, you know, you have to whenever you mention it to other people, they're like, well, if you get rid of the cops, then gangs are going to move in. And I'm like, well, I just saw a whole bunch of gang members and they had lights and sirens. And they, when they're in trouble, they call their buddies and they're like, oh, ha, 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 Jared, you're being stupid. And I'm like, I'm just calling it the way I see it. And apparently I'm a, I'm a, I'm an extremist for that. So I'm not sure what to say. <laughs> So the bravery of cops uh, um, that you just made me think of this about how some of the people will say, yeah, but do you want to be the ones confronting these gangbangers and, and, and all of this? Let me tell you what a hardcore dude I am. And, and I'm going to start with my official professional go on LinkedIn resume. I was a deputy in a jail. That was the sixth largest jail population in the country. We were the sixth largest jail in the country. And I worked with 1,500 inmates, 1,600 inmates all around me. And these are some hardened gangbanger type people. I would go in and there would be a riot in one of the rooms, you know, over 100 people fighting. I go in there and me and maybe two or three other people and I have to quell this riot. What kind of bravery did I have to have? And then. I went to Hermosa Beach Police Department and I spent time there and, and there were times, 4th of July, there were these crowds of tens of thousands of people and they were getting out of hand and we would walk along tapping our nightsticks into, you know, into our opposite hand and, and looking tough and we were able to keep the peace. And, and then I went to my other town in, in middle America and, and I was there and I was ended up on the, the entry team, on the, the SWAT team and then I worked my way to the sniper team and then I wound up sniper team leader and I would be on the airport roof as the vice president flew in with my, my, my rifle providing counter sniper services and, and that I was a crimes against children detective and I would do child forensic interviewing of children that have been molested and, and, and I would oh boy I'm quite the guy in truth all that fancy resume boosting stuff like the last part the being on the, the, the sniper on the roof yeah, okay, I climbed up on a roof and I laid on a roof. 
that's not a big deal. There were a thousand, 5,000 teenagers around me that had been hunting with their parents their whole life that are better shooters than I was. Uh, quelling a riot, really? Did the, did the inmates really swing at me? Do they really want to do another two or three years in the pen? Of course not, or in the move up to the pen. They don't want to do that. As a cop, other than me being stupid and driving 105 miles an hour in areas I shouldn't have been, getting to calls that didn't need me there that quickly, in all of my 10 years as a cop, there was one time that I went up to a house on a call and walk up to the door. Protocol was to wait for a backup officer to get there before I walked in. But I saw the guy grabbing his wife and pulling his fist back. And I went through the door and I grabbed him and I arrested him. Of all of my thousands of calls that I responded to, that was the one time in 10 years that I really, quote unquote, saved someone. Of course, I'm sure she got into the system and got help and ended up going through counseling and getting out and is now with another guy that's abusing her or the same guy. So I don't even know that I helped in the long run. But that was the one time. I think the average taxi driver has helped way more people than that, has seen way more violence and stepped up and said no and pulled two guys apart. Um, And yeah, I I had other things happen, but I I didn't have – I wasn't a brave guy. I was as brave as the next, but it wasn't like I was out putting my life on the line every day. No, no, you're not. Construction workers have dangerous jobs. Cops don't. Hmm. Well, as an electrician, I can appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've seen those statistics that show, you know, what is it? uh, uh, Crab fishermen and, and uh, I think roofer, Roofers, I think, actually have a, a high uh, uh, mortality rate on the job. But, yeah, I think cops are pretty far down there. Um, and I'm not – I guess my – you know, you, you've said a lot of, uh, I, I guess, disparaging things about the police, and which I get. And I guess if I wanted to answer the question of people who were to ask me, you know, well, if you get rid of the, the police, who would fill that vacuum? And to me, it would be, well – pretty much just police, but they would be private police. Um, and they wouldn't be, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't be dictated to as far as you have to follow these rules because a bunch of, uh, overweight, uh, white men and on cap and the Capitol, um, made these rules up because they, they know they won't affect them at all. And all it is for is for revenue, but it would be more of a community oriented thing, which, which to me means that the people who would be police officers, whether they were volunteer or they were private, would know they'd have to hold themselves to a a higher level because they're directly involved with the community. And so there is a room for bravery, and I believe that you do need brave men and women out there doing those jobs. Uh, but... I think the only discernment I have is that he may say that, you know, you weren't brave, but if you were a, let's say you run a private, uh, a, a private dole, you're still, you're still doing a good job or you, know, you still would have done a good job. Uh, the only discernment again is, is that you, you're, you know, the money that was your salary, what came from taxation and also from, um, yeah, you know, like you said, the tickets that you wrote and things like that, which you already mentioned, you wish you had a way to pay it all back. So, uh, 
I, I, I can't. And, and even that bravery, I think the real bravery, you know who I think is going to respond to that, to, to problems? You. You are, Jared. I am. The person listening to us right now, I ask all, all of us, if you walk out of a restaurant and a man is beating up a woman and you're physically equal or capable, are you really just going to keep walking? Are you going to call government or private security and wait nine or 10 minutes for them to show up average response time. And if you're lucky, I, I think you and I, and, and everyone listening is going to say, well, no, I'm going to go over and stop him. And if I don't have the physical power, I'm going to go over and, Hey man, knock that off. You're being silly or, or whatever you have to do to try to save her. Human beings are who are going to protect us not people assigned to be protectors. I have a security consultation business and I've worked a lot of security gigs for a lot of millionaires and billionaires and 95% of it is a joke. It's an image thing. Now, now there are real, true, serious people that have risks and have serious protective agents with them, but 95% of people that hire security to do stuff security is no better trained, better prepared, better, braver, any of that stuff. It, I really think it comes down to what would you do, Jared, if you saw a happening, what is your principle? What are you going to step up and do? Even if it means you get a black eye or broken arm, what are you going to do? Because that's what good human beings do. That's what men do. That's what men who man up do. I think your answer to that, even if you don't say it out loud, is, well, I'm not going not gonna to brag here, but if something's <laughs> going on, I'm going to step up and do what a good human being would do. So I think we, the human beings, are that, that are good-hearted and, and, yeah, have some bravery. We are the solution, not the state or even private security for the most part. No, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. That's very well said as well. Um, yeah, it, it's tough these days because you see, well, I don't personally see, but I've seen uh, videos on YouTube or whatever and of how many things will happen out there that people just don't step up. They'll, they'll allow them to just kind of go on and on. And it, it does make me wonder, you know, whatever happened to, you know, as you put it, uh, men and, and people who are capable of taking care of these things. Uh, is it, uh, I'm not sure if it's more of a, we're so accustomed to just wanting to call the authorities, let them handle it. Or if it's the fact that uh, people just aren't as, they're not as willing to go, that extra mile anymore. But to answer your question, uh, yeah, I, I, <laughs> and I have no problem saying it. I am the kind of guy and it sounds kind of braggadocious, but yeah, I am the kind of guy that will take care of things if I have to. Um, I, I, I may or may not be a concealed carry uh, guy myself. Um, I may or may not have, uh, trained with, um, some, um, uh, what do you call them? Some firearms uh, agencies. So I think uh, I'm pretty good with that. <laughs> yes. Oh, and, and by and the way, training with – and part of our deal with training was we would take these – we trained security officers for a local uh, – a large local company in the Seattle area um, to be security guards. And most of these guys were ex-military. And we had a, a – I forget how many-week course it was with everything from basic, you know – 
dry firing to uh, clearing uh, jams to actual, you know, draw fire, move fire, that kind of stuff. And um, no, no cops were there, no formal, no, no former police officers, but we had a ton of former military and these guys could not shoot themselves out of a paper bag when they first walked in. And so when I hear people say, well, you know, especially regarding the, the whole, um, uh, second amendment thing. It's like, well, that's meant to be, you know, more towards, uh, uh, an organized militia or that's the military you're talking about. Those are the people who know how to use firearms. <laughs> And it really opened my eyes during that during those courses that no, we're relying on the wrong people. It's the trainers who are actually the Amen. people you need to call. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yeah, we with our one of our businesses, we've trained over thirteen thousand people to shoot. And I have probably personally trained yeah, for thousand forty five hundred of those and uh, we've had a number of cops come through of course we refuse to train military or law enforcement in an official capacity if you're if you're old and retired and out with your family we'll train you but not if you're not if it's your SWAT team that wants us but of all of those people that we've experienced I have never been impressed with a cop or a military person mm. um, they are probably good at whatever it is they do which is draw money and complain and uh, whatever, but at shooting, I agree completely. It's ridiculous to think that they should only be in the hands of the really highly trained and skilled professionals, law enforcement, military. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I guess that explains why that, I forget what year it was when it was, uh, it was in New York city when I forget there were a, a handful of cops and they were, they, they were exchanging fire with some, buddy who was shooting at them and i'm not sure you recall this but they, they i forget how many rounds were fired but they only they missed like every everybody yes. <laughs> and, 37 shots fired <laughs> once in the ankle right <laughs> but then again i don't think new york really has a very stringent uh, hiring process because i think they just need too many people on the force over there yeah and i think that with a lot of the racist policies standards have uh really been lowered. I, I scored a hundred percent when I tested for Los Angeles police department in 94. Mm. And at the time they would only hire a white male who scored 102 and to get, you could get five extra points if you had quote unquote served in desert storm. So if you were former military that had served in desert storm, you got the five extra. Well, I hadn't served. So it was completely useless. I didn't know this ahead of time, but it was completely useless for me to even apply for that position or even test for it. Uh, at the time, I believe it was 90% you had to score if you were black. Hmm. And if you were a woman, I think it was 80%. And if you were Hispanic, you had to score 70%. And so because of those policies, you got a lot of people in that weren't very well screened or very well hired. And then all of the promotions or half of the promotions at least were based on the same thing. So it wasn't the best and the brightest getting promoted. It was based on accident of birth issues. Uh, so I think there are a lot of reasons that the system is messed up, but it just made me think of another tangent reason. <laughs> But you have all that white privilege, though. I mean, that should have gotten yeah. that should have, should have gotten you through. You'd think. <laughs> I'm actually, you know, you look back at things, and and it was a dream for many years to to do that. Um, I 
after the Rodney King thing, I was in college at the time and I was corresponding with, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think the name of one of the cops that beat Rodney King. Oh yeah. And I was writing to him in prison, basically saying, Hey man, you did what you had to do. And I'm sorry, everybody's using you as a scapegoat. And like, that's how full on full bore, full throttle statist I was pro government power and control back in 93, 92, 93, I think was when this happened. Um, I was completely into it at that point. So embarrassing to, to look at the me that I once was. It's just, it's horrible. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> well, also in full disclosure, I, uh, let's see when I was, when I was what, 17 or 18, I, I was going to join the army and I forget what happened. That was back in 88. I forget what was going on back then. I don't, I don't think we had much going on militarily in the world back then. So it was a, a safer and gentler time to be in, in the military. And then let's see, I, I didn't go because I actually had a girlfriend at the time who she was begging me not to go. And being an 18 year old male, I, I decided it was more important to listen to my girlfriend than it was Good to actually you. listen to uh, <laughs> my future. But then I think I turned towards law enforcement and I actually applied for a city job. I think it was Tacoma Police Department and I think it was King County Sheriff's Department and ended up doing uh, uh, the physical test for one of them and the written for a different one. And I passed the physical, I think it was for King County Sheriff, but failed the written for Tacoma PD. And I couldn't figure out why it was. And I was finally told that I had, you have to watch a video and watch this crime go down and then report on what you saw. And apparently I was a little bit too detail oriented. <laughs> they didn't need to know, you know, what kind of shoes and who was on their hats and all this stuff. But I, I made this really, I was like, I'm really going to impress these people. I'm going to give them a really good report. And they're like, no, you just need some basic specifics. You don't need to go full tilt on this stuff. Right. And, I, and I'm thinking, well, wouldn't you want more detail? <laughs> you would think you wouldn't want to get the right guy. Well, and maybe you were too smart too. But I went to, I was I was so fortunate in my life. I'm such a lucky guy. I got to go to a uh, one of the Jay Leno tapings of the Tonight Show. And the night I went, one of my big heroes, George Carlin, was there. But more importantly, was a cop that was somewhere from New England, I think. And this guy had been re you know, rejected because he had too high of an IQ. He had like 125, I think, which mm. isn't stupid high. But... <laughs> Well, so to speak. However, it's it's way above what they want, which is the you know hundred to hundred and ten range, and so he was too smart to be a cop. Right. I mean, how hilarious is that? So it's 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 almost when I look at all the troubles I had at the three agencies I worked for, and maybe I'm just trying to cover for myself, but I look back and go, maybe that means I was smart and good that I had so many <laughs> personnel issues that I was a horrible employee at the time. <laughs> Yeah, I recently saw something. I forget which uh, PD it was, but it, it made the news, and uh, it was going around the, the internet. And they were talking about how they actually had a maximum IQ that they would accept onto the force. Yeah, I, I found that pretty humorous. Um, but I, you know, but the thing I think really kind of got me 
in my past was uh, I had some bad interactions with law enforcement that were, I mean, honestly, no, they were nothing I ever did. Me and my buddy were mistaken for two people. We, we fit the description, as they say, of two people that were going around this apartment complex and, uh, and basically knocking on doors and holding them up right there in their doorway. And, uh, we were just cruising along, and, and next thing you know, we had all these cops around us, and they yarded us off his motorcycle. And yeah, it was really uh, sorry about that. It was really uh, quite uh, um, impressionable. But uh, anyway, I think what the dang dog's doing—the the whole whining is issue. I should probably wrap this up. Um, please plug your uh, YouTube channel and anything else you'd like to. Oh, you know, I, I think the cream rises to the top. Um, if you just Google voluntarism, uh, I don't, I don't even want to plug it. I, it's, it's, if I'm good enough, I'm going to rise up, and you'll know my name in time. And and right now, boy, I put a video out, and I can guarantee you, within a month, I've got six to seven views. So I'm I'm pretty hot right now. Uh, but no, don't don't look at my stuff. Look at other stuff. I'm just. Uh, yeah, it's you know what? Make your own videos and do them better than I do. I decided to do this in November of last year after going to a powerful U, their first convention or conference in Salt Lake City, and people were kind of saying, Get off your butt and do stuff at, at the convention. And so within a week, I will have a hundred videos up since then. So, what's that four or five months, something like that? I am not that skilled of a dude go on to to onlinejobs.ph hire a filipino i have a filipino virtual assistant that edits my videos beautifully for two dollars and fifty cents each and do that beat me out of this i am not the right guy for this job you are the right person you who, who's listening to this right now start your own youtube channel you can beat me easily and quickly get it done <laughs> That's a good good message. Well, anyway, I will tell them that to find you at uh, Shepherd Thinks on YouTube. Um, I'm telling you, a lot of great videos, a lot of great life tips, a lot of great business tips, and a great delivery method as well. He comes across, or you come across, uh, very, like I said earlier in the show, uh, very welcoming and not hitting you on the head with information. It's more just kind of getting you to think. And that's a great name, Shepard Thanks. So, hey, I really appreciate you being on the show. And I, I'm good conversation. I really enjoyed it very much. Um, so best of luck to you. Thank you, Jared. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for taking the time. And by the way, you do you have a website in addition to the, the podcast that I'm getting? I do. <laughs> it put me on the spot. It's it's not my personal um, uh, website. It's actually it's called everythingvoluntary.com, and that's ran by a guy named Skyler Collins, who is one of the guys that got me uh, interested and helped me get going on the whole podcasting thing. But yeah, Skyler over at uh, everythingvoluntary.com, he's got a lot of information there, a lot of great videos, a lot of great articles. There's a lot of talent over there writing um, and producing content. So yeah, plug for him and his website. So there you go. Are you happy? <laughs> yes, indeed. All right. Well, thanks a lot again, and we'll talk to you later. Will you do me a favor? Will you rate and review this podcast from wherever you're listening from? That would really help. And one more thing. Please share this podcast with your friends. <laughs>